Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the recent weeks and months since the passing of Bill 24, have you given thought to what it might mean if you were no longer permitted to teach your children according to Scripture? I know that it's occupied my thoughts from time to time, as I'm sure it has likely occupied yours. And so it's good to reflect upon what God would have us do in respect to our children. And in my reflections, I think of the words of Deuteronomy 11, verses 18 through 21, where the Lord commands the people of God. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking to them when you are sitting in your house and when you are walking by the way, and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them as long as the heavens are above the earth. The upbringing of covenant children is never to be separated from the word of God, as long as the heavens are above the earth. This is how Christians raise their children. And here in Deuteronomy, it starts with the parenting. Our faith needs to be a priority, not just in our homes, but out in the street in our daily life. Wherever we go, whether to school or to work, we wear our faith like a necklace around our neck for everyone to see. And it's not just for the benefit of the world around us to bear witness. It's also a crucial part of teaching your children the way of the Lord. In Deuteronomy, the Israelites were told that if this was how they lived, then they would be blessed. And not surprisingly, so would their children. And so when the state says to us as parents that we may not infuse our Christian values into the policies of our Christian schools, they are essentially telling us to be disobedient to the command of the Lord. But it's not just that they want us to be disobedient, brothers and sisters. Many have a purpose in this, to bring the thinking of our children in line with their worldview. In a recent article that I read on imitation, it states, anthropological evidence has shown that in many cultures, observational learning and imitation are the major ways by which behaviors unique to that culture are transmitted from one generation to the next. It's been argued that imitation is more efficient than either trial and error learning or individual problem solving. Learning by imitation is more rapid particularly when the environment of the demonstrators and the observers are similar, end quote. And so, beloved, that leads us to the conclusion. What do they want? 
They want to create the same environment in our schools as the public schools. Because really, it's the fastest way to change the thinking of our children and reshape the thoughts and behaviors of the next generation to match their own. But Paul tells us something different. He reminds us that we are citizens of heaven, first and foremost. And like Deuteronomy, he gives us similar advice. He tells us to imitate the faithful. Therefore, I preach to you God's word under the following theme and points. As citizens of heaven, we imitate the faithful, we recognize the enemy, and we await the victor. Beloved Paul and the church of his day experienced many of the same pressures as we do today. Paul was in chains for Christ, sitting in a Roman prison, awaiting his fate, all because his confession of Christ. But as we learned back in Philippians chapter 1, Paul doesn't want us to live like those oppressed. No, he wants us to live like free citizens of heaven. In spite of the obstacles and the challenges presented by the ruling Roman authorities, Paul wants the rank and file in Philippi to keep on living their lives like free citizens of heaven. That's the way Paul himself has operated. He may be in chains, but he continues to render service to his king in heaven, using his gifts and his talents for the upbuilding of God's kingdom. And he wants the congregation to join him in this way of service. In verse 7, he begins by addressing them as brothers. The term brothers is in the Greek plural, which is usually understood to include both brothers and sisters. And so the first thing we notice is that Paul addresses the whole corporate community. And he says to the church community, join in imitating me. Our initial thought might be that Paul is encouraging us to join him in imitating Christ. And after all, he spent a large part of chapter 2 telling us how to emulate the humility of Christ. And although this might be wise advice and may be implied indirectly here, it's not quite what Paul is suggesting. No, we need to look at the immediate context of chapter 3. Paul, remember how Paul had warned the Philippians not to go the way of works righteousness. He appealed to them through his argument that he himself was the most deserving of being found righteous in the flesh. When in spite of being Jewish royalty, you might say, he learned that it was not the way of salvation. And Paul concluded that they should put no confidence in the flesh. No, instead they needed to count their lives prior to faith in Jesus Christ as lost. The way forward needed to be shaped by the knowledge that salvation was to be found in no one else but Jesus Christ. And last time in Philippians, we heard that this reshaped Paul's attitude. There was an admission that he had not yet fully attained the perfection that he had so desired. He had come to realize that the prize of perfection would be realized only at the end of the race. And so he tells us to forget about what lies behind, the sins, the baggage, whatever else is holding us back, and to press on in faith. And such a mindset, according to Paul, was a sign of maturity 
and he ends this section of the letter with the warning, only let us hold true to what we have attained. Paul's concern is that the Philippians would fall back into immaturity or worth, fall away altogether. And this is where our text picks up. Paul saying to the Philippians, I have some practical advice for you. Do you want to stand firm in your faith? Do you want to press on toward maturity and avoid going back to the self-deception of your former way of life, believing that you can achieve perfection through your own efforts? No, perfection could only be found in the sanctifying work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Paul, an apostle chosen by God to lay the foundation of the church among the Gentiles, had learned this important lesson. And he invites the Philippians to join him in imitating his transformed life. We should be careful not to conclude that Paul is boasting here. He's not saying, look at me and do as I do because I have it all worked out. No, quite the opposite. Paul is saying, I thought I had it all worked out. But I've come to the realization that it's really Christ that has it all worked out for me. And so I look to him, and I press on in his service with zeal to reach the eventual goal. Dear brother and dear sister, please join me in placing your hope exclusively in your Savior. And so live your life in service to him. Then you will not fall back into the old pattern of things. Paul understands that imitation is a powerful instructional tool. And so he goes on to encourage the congregation further in this direction. He tells them, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Paul, a citizen of heaven, lived as a free man in spite of his chains, running the race with zeal, no matter what circumstances he found himself in. And haven't we all met brothers and sisters in Christ who were like pillars embedded in the rock, who weathered the storms of this life with a faith that continually looked forward? They didn't rely on their own strength. No, they relied upon their Savior. They joined Paul in his way of life, not putting any confidence in the flesh. Such believers seem unfazed by the trials and the temptations that come their way. And yet they display humility, a humble acceptance of their own sins and limitations. And a joy emanates from their presence that clings to the sure promises of salvation in Jesus Christ. They are a testimony of the faithfulness of our God who gives us godly mentors to instruct us. Paul says those are the people who should be shaping your lives. Those are the ones we are to imitate. Not the state, not Alberta education, not the world and not the culture, but the faithful who walk according to the example given by the Apostle Paul. The alternative congregation brings tears to Paul's eyes as we will see when we look at verse 18. He reminds the Philippians that there are also those who are enemies of the cross. And that brings us to our second point. As citizens of heaven, 
we recognize the enemy. In contrast to the faithful who imitate Paul's way of life, Paul proceeds to remind the church at Philippi that there are many who do not walk in faith. Paul says, For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. It's not entirely clear who Paul has in mind. Were the enemies Paul's opponents who moved in Christian circles sowing the seeds of dissension? Or was Paul referring to the non-Christians who in their opposition to the church were busy persecuting God's people? Well, Paul gives us a clear clue. He's speaking about those who he has already told them about. This likely refers to two groups. Paul was in chains in Rome being persecuted by the Roman authorities. And at the end of chapter 1, he speaks about the suffering that has come upon the church at Philippi as the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul calls them to stand united against this threat from the world. The second group of opponents Paul mentions are the Judaizers, the mutilators of the flesh, who he calls dogs, who operate within the covenant community. And so the enemies of the cross are both within the church and outside of the church community. And beloved, knowing and identifying the enemies of Christ does not give Paul a sense of satisfaction. Rather, our text says that Paul speaks about this reality with tears. He was grieved at their opposition to the church. But not because God's people were being opposed, as we might expect. His concern does not originate in the hardship the church might face because of the unchristian opposition. No, he sees the end for those who oppose Christ. Verse 19 says, their end is their destruction. His attitude to the unbeliever is not one of contempt, but one of compassion. Because in the end, those who do not confess Christ as their Lord will, will meet their eternal judge estranged from the Savior of the world. And at the same time, Paul was warning the Philippians by exposing this contrasting way of life. The concerns of those estranged from Christ are worldly. Their God is their belly, and their glory is their shame, with minds set on earthly things, our text tells us. The focus of those opposed to Christ and to his church is not on heavenly things, but rather on earthly things, as verse 19 points out. Those whose minds are set on earthly things Things display their allegiance in two ways, according to Paul. The first is that they make their own belly their God. This doesn't mean that they are gluttons who are primarily concerned about their daily bread, indulging in all sorts of fine food and the like, although this might be included. To be concerned about one's own belly has the sense of being concerned about one's own appetites. They only are concerned with themselves, with their own needs and wants. And so they live exclusively for themselves. Paul speaks in a similar way in our reading in Romans 16, verse 18, where we read, 
For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. Those estranged from Christ make their personal pleasure the priority of their lives. And what Paul says next about the opponents of the gospel therefore makes a lot of sense. And they glory in their shame. When life is all about fulfilling my own sinful appetites, then it follows that those outside of Christ will celebrate the depravity in which they live. And beloved, isn't this what we observe in the world around us? Many just think about their next sexual conquest with the intention of satisfying their own sensual desires. And afterwards, they boast about all the partners with whom they've celebrated their depravity. So the celebrities of this world think nothing of celebrating their promiscuity as they move from relationship to relationship. And these are often the mentors of the world. The gay community marches in the streets expressing their pride with the fulfillment of their own sexual appetites. These are the world's mentors, not the mentors of God's people. Because, beloved, this way of life will only lead to their destruction, and contrary to what the world might say, stating that is not an act of hate. We, like Paul, say it with tears. Because we know that to be an enemy of the cross of Christ will ultimately lead to their destruction. But beloved, that's not the lot for those who find their citizenship in heaven. And that brings us to our third point. As citizens of heaven, we await the victor. Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, congregation, when we imitate Paul and the faithful who have embraced Paul's teachings, the focus of our life is not on this world. Heaven colors our perspective. Through Jesus Christ, my heavenly King, I am heir to eternal life. And in light of what that means, we don't throw up our hands in despair when this world rises against the church. No, beloved, we throw our hands up in praise to our heavenly King who has made us citizens of his kingdom. And when we weep, we do not weep for ourselves, but for those who do not know the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We are not victims who suffer the oppression of this world, although in some sense we may be victimized in this life, but our sights are focused somewhere else. And so in the big picture, we are not victims. Rather, we are victors, along with our Lord and Savior. And that needs to shape our thinking, as it did Paul's. Back in Philippians chapter 1, he says, It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. We may not permit any worldly pressure, whether internal or external, to divert us from the prize. No, we as the church of Christ press on to the goal. Because, beloved, it's a glorious goal. We have a promise from our righteous King. 
And Paul brings that to the Philippians' attention. He reminds them that our Lord Jesus Christ will transform our lowly bodies to be like His glorious body. The prize of reaching perfection. Well, it's not a pipe dream. Oh, it's true that we are unable to get there in our own strength. But our Savior is sufficient. And He promises to transform us. He will take the weakness of our flesh and blood and transform us to be like Him. No longer will we suffer in the weakness of our flesh. The sin and the pain and the suffering of this world will be no more. This is the same truth that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. And that's why we need to be transformed. And it's in that transformation that we observe Christ's victory. 1 Corinthians goes on to say, When the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul reassures the church at Philippi who it is that has the power. He says that Christ will transform us by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our Lord and Savior has ascended into heaven as the first fruits of the resurrection where all power and authority has been given to him so that he might redeem a people for God. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 22 through 24 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Those who oppose the church do so as temporal powers who abuse, whose abuse of authority will come to an end, an end for which we can weep. But, beloved, we will not weep forever. The ultimate power and authority rests in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and as citizens of His heavenly city, we have the wonderful promise of being transformed into the glorious perfection of the victorious city of God. And so Paul tells the Philippians, and the message remains the same for us today, follow in the footsteps of the faithful, grieve over the missteps of the world, and rejoice that your Savior, the victorious King of Heaven, is coming to take the heavenly citizens home, where they will be transformed to be like Him and live in eternal glory. Amen.